I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. Every year we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus as hope in a world torn by suffering. But this year, amongst all our unique aches and pains, there is a common struggle as Easter arrives during a global pandemic. This is, I think, the ideal time to celebrate someone coming back from the dead. This is called the Cross of St. Peter. It's a symbol of profound faithfulness. Later, of course, it was repurposed in pop culture by bands like Black Sabbath and Italian horror movies as an anti-Christian symbol, likely by folks unaware of its deeply Christian origins. We know from early church writings that Peter, like Jesus, was crucified by Rome. But unlike Jesus, Peter was hung head down on his cross at his own request. Jerome, a fourth century priest, wrote that, At Nero's hands, Peter received the crown of martyrdom, being nailed to the cross with his head towards the ground and his feet raised on high, asserting that he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. In one of his final recorded conversations with his friend Peter, Jesus himself alluded to this dark shadow in Peter's future, telling him in John 21, When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to Peter, follow me. This, to me, is one of the most haunting yet beautiful things Jesus ever says to someone in his life. When you were younger, you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And I imagine Peter in the horror of his own execution, his death imminent, he's about to be hung on the cross to suffer and die, and Peter saying, no, 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 not like Jesus, I'm not worthy. The disciple who once denied knowing Jesus, the disciple who once sank in the turbulent sea when his fear was greater than his faith, now asking to be hung upside down because he is unworthy to die like Jesus. Not, please, no, not, don't hurt me, don't hurt me, but don't hang me like him. I don't deserve the honor of dying the same way. Same guy. So what changed in this man? In Acts 12, we read that another disciple, uh, one of Jesus' close friends, James, one of the apostles, he was also executed, which is odd because here was a man who at one point in his life so misunderstood the teachings of his master, the teaching that was to love enemies, embrace a lifestyle of nonviolence, that he once asked Jesus if he should call down fire from heaven to destroy a village that did not welcome them. But then later on in his life, here he is so taken with the way of Jesus, a way he once misunderstood, that he is willing to die for it. What happened to that guy? Paul, a man who wrote most of the New Testament, at one point he didn't just misunderstand the teachings of Jesus. He didn't just deny knowing Jesus in a moment of panic. Paul was so set against the way of Jesus that he was the one calling for the execution of those who practiced it. But later in his life, he was beheaded for the name of Jesus. He likened his impending execution to being poured out like a drink offering, believing that in this way he would honor the one for whom he chose to die. 
So how did how did he change? Philip, Andrew, Jude, Thomas, Bartholomew was even said to have been skinned alive. And subsequent apprentices of Jesus found such meaning in these deaths that the inverted cross became a symbol of resilient faith. Uh, a shield brandishing the flaying knives by which Bartholomew was said to have been skinned alive became his symbol, much as the shape of Jesus' humiliating execution, a Roman cross, became the subversive symbol of his movement. And this wasn't some isolated moment in history. For centuries all over the world and to this very day, men and women continue to face prison and torture and death rather than renounce Jesus, which is incredible enough, but... These first few martyrs in church history are perplexing because here's the thing. I take faithfulness to the way of Jesus very seriously, but you and I both know that in lieu of evidence and even logic, people can be convinced of all kinds of kooky things from pyramid schemes to death cults to Beyonce, Super Bowl, deep state Illuminati conspiracy theories. And I'm the first to admit that what I believe and what we do as disciples of Jesus, things like worship and communion and liturgy, it must seem, to some anyway, quite strange. I get that. I'm not at all embarrassed by that, but I get that it's likely odd to the occasional outsider. And that's fine. Everyone believes something that seems outrageous to someone else. And out of those beliefs, all of us operate under the presumption that whoever finds said beliefs outrageous is uninformed or incorrect or even deceived. We do this with the things that we believe about all kinds of stuff, religion, politics, you name it. All of us do this. But it's pretty rare that we put everything on the line, including our own lives, for something that we know for certain is not true. It's rarer still that many people would do this collectively when they all know the thing to be a charade and when upholding that charade will bring them nothing but grief. And it's most rare that a group of people might risk life and limb to uphold a known lie that will only bring them grief when the lie in question totally upends who those people once were and what those people once believed. You don't just throw away everything you were and everything that you once believed and face death for something that you know for sure is a lie. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. On the day that this uh, video is intended to be seen, it will be the most significant day of celebration for disciples of Jesus all over the world. A day when every man, woman, and child who belongs to what the New Testament calls the way celebrates what we believe to be nothing less than the single most significant event in human history. Now, in the modern Western context, Easter is uh, kind of taken for granted. Some people dress up. Some people might hang out with their families for dinner or something. Some people go to church when they wouldn't ordinarily go to church. Eggs are a thing. We hide and look for eggs. Speaking of things that sound strange which is we think the egg, the whole egg thing is derived from pagan customs around Estra, the goddess of spring and fertility, which eggs symbolize, that is, spring and fertility, because Christians love to repurpose pagan customs, unless it has to do with a pumpkin. When I was a kid, my Southern Baptist church did a huge Easter egg hunt, 
with actual hard-boiled eggs, not the plastic kind. And then after the hunt, we would take all the eggs that we found outside in the dirt and the grass and peel them and eat them because nothing quite says Easter like a fellowship hall filled with the fart stink of sulfur. Estra smiling down on us as we enjoyed eggs. <laughs> I'm kidding. It was fun. I had a great time. It was gross. And then the next year, we would find the rotten eggs from the year before. My point is that uh, for many in the Western world, Easter isn't exactly this monumental, massive occasion. Elsewhere in the world, it is. Disciples of Jesus have to gather in secret to celebrate Easter or under the threat of persecution or even violence. Just last year in Sri Lanka, three churches and three hotels were bombed on Easter Sunday, targeting disciples of Jesus on their most sacred day of celebration, killing some 259 men, women, and children. By the time this video plays, something similar may have happened elsewhere in the world. So, Much like the way of Jesus itself, Easter Sunday is little more than ordinary and routine for some. And for others, it has been a day of struggle and resilience amongst suffering. But this Easter Sunday is unique in that all over the world, there is a common struggle. Lots of unique struggles, but there's a common one as well, a shared discomfort. This year, Easter is nestled within an ongoing global pandemic. In areas all over the globe, people are sick, dying, people are afraid, lonely, restless, discouraged. Many of the privileges that we take for granted, uh, even just a few weeks prior, have been stripped away. Things like dinner with a friend or reading in a coffee shop or dropping off your kids at school in the morning. A casual and uneventful journey to the grocery store rather than one with post-apocalyptic messages on the intercom and everyone in masks breathing like Darth Vader as you pass someone afraid that they have the cooties and stuff. Mostly, I think people are just scared. Not everyone would describe what they're feeling as fear, per se, but there is a sense of dread hanging in the air. And it seems to me that a lot of that uneasiness has to do with the fog of the unknown. It's mostly this. Things seem really bad right now, and we're waiting for something to happen to change that, which is, I think, really the story of human history. Now, trust me, we are on our way to the Gospel of Luke, but what we're going to read there is a crescendo to a story that begins much, much earlier. So before that, bear with me for a few minutes as we kind of set the stage. Are you guys ready here in the studio? Wow, you hear that excitement? It's Easter. Well, it will be when you watch this. Are you guys ready on the screen? All right. Most people down throughout history have recognized that all is not right in the world. It doesn't take a genius to look at the way things are and say, hmm, something seems off. And we all have different ways of explaining why that is. For the Buddhists, it's desire. For the naturalists, it's the indifference of a purposeless cosmos. For Scientologists, it's the brainwashed souls of space aliens that have taken up residence in humanity. Point is, as long as we've been here, we've been able to recognize collectively as a people that all is not well. The world is replete with suffering and chaos, which flies in the face of our experience that there also seems to be meaning and purpose and beauty in life and in the world. And it surprises no one that the Bible has a lot to say about the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of the people in it. But what would likely surprise some is how much the Bible's take on all this 
resonates with our experience in the here and now. See, the Bible explains our predicament with very old, very religious-sounding terminology like iniquity and wickedness and transgression or sin. And many a modern reader associates that kind of vocabulary with breaking religious rules. And so the Bible's worldview is often dismissed as archaic and out of touch, kind of a product of a bygone era. But the Bible's understanding of our problems couldn't be more timely. Iniquity, for example, comes from the Hebrew word, uh, the Hebrew word ava, which means more literally to be bent or crooked. And it's used to describe, among other things, corruption amongst political leaders who fail to care for the poor. Transgression, on the other hand, describes fractured relationships, broken trust, betrayal. And sin, arguably the most famous of the naughty Bible words, actually means to miss the mark, or even simpler, it means to fail. But this concept is so huge throughout the Bible because in the Bible's worldview, really on page one, we learn that God is the good and loving creator of the universe and that his masterpiece, humanity, is made in God's image. We also learn on page one that God is relational. He wants to exist in a dynamic, collaborative union with creation. And we are like God in that way. We long for connection and purpose. Now, of course, God, being God and all, could have designed a world where only the things he wanted to happen would happen. But it doesn't take a theologian to understand that that wouldn't leave much room for dynamic relationship or for authentic love, which must be chosen, which is risky. So God gives us a say, risk and all. And God says that all humans and God himself are to be loved and treated in a way that is consistent with the truth that we are made in the image of God. Now, naturally, humans use their God-given autonomy to choose to do otherwise. And when humans do not love God or people, we fail. We miss the mark. And the Bible calls that sin. Even the really dated-sounding writings of the Hebrew Scriptures encapsulate this very simple idea. Take the Ten Commandments, for example. Uh, it's, in essence, a code of conduct for Israel, the people of God. One half is about loving God. The other half is about loving people. And that would all be simple enough, but in the story of the Bible, there's actually more to it than that. It's not just us messing things up. In the Bible's worldview, the world we know and see exists alongside an overlapping but largely unseen spiritual realm, which sounds weird, I know. But in the same way that God is real and present yet, un, yet invisible, there are other spiritual beings who, like God, are real and relational and invisible, and they interact with and affect the physical realm. The Bible calls them things like angels or demons or even gods with a lowercase g. One of them shows up in the Bible's first story as a talking snake that energizes and empowers the human potential to reject the loving rule of God, which is a weird story, granted. But don't get distracted by valid questions like, is this literal or is this a metaphor of some kind? Is this poetry? Is it symbolism? The point of the story is that the human project right away goes off the rails. And this spiritual being goes on to earn all sorts of titles. 
The same talking snake later gets referred to as the devil, which means the slanderer, or the Satan, which means the adversary. And much like the snake character did at the beginning of the story, the Satan and spiritual beings like him, they use lies, deception, to further entrench already wayward humanity in cycles of chaos, which results in more sin, more failure, more suffering, and more death. Because failure or sin is like an infection. And people certainly disagree on the nature and origin of evil, but most people do agree that evil has consequences. And those consequences extend well beyond isolated moments and events. A white lie is not just a white lie. It has effects on people and consequences, affecting entire communities and even subsequent generations. Sin is like a pandemic, And in the Bible story, we get that all is not well. That much is clear really early on in the story. We get that we, all people, persist in contributing to the corrupted environment of our world. We act selfishly. We treat others without dignity. We lie and we do much, much worse. And that cycle cripples the world in a kind of broken recursive loop. And lots of people have all sorts of ideas about how we change that. Many believe such a change would have to be political in nature. So they think, if the people that I prefer are in power, and if the policies that I prefer were in place, we would get out of this mess and we would move closer to utopia. For others, it's less political and more about right behaviors. If we would all just live this way according to these codes, things would finally change. But both of those methods are well represented in the unfolding narrative of the Bible. So, for example, the political one. People try kings. That happens really early on in the story. But kings don't work because kings are people. And people are, in some sense, bent and broken and capable of evil. Which is why we can't seem to consistently embrace any kind of moral or upright behavior. Most people agree on some universal sense of morality. That, for instance, to abuse another person for your own benefit is wrong. You shouldn't do that. But no one has been able to live in a way that avoids doing that kind of thing. And so the Bible story is this epic unfolding narrative of weight essentially. Humanity learning and relearning how backward and bent out of shape everything is and waiting for something to change all that. And throughout the Old Testament, God's people hold out hope that change will come from God himself. He promised it would. And that change will come in and through someone they called the Messiah, a word that means the anointed one, a coming king prophesied as early really as Genesis 3 that would crush the lying snake and usher in God's kingdom forever and ever. The story goes on, the Messiah doesn't show up, kings come and go, generations come and go, and people just keep waiting. Then the New Testament opens on this character called Jesus of Nazareth. And it's a fascinating read because the authors know that Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. Some of the authors tell us so right out of the gate. But the characters in the story don't know this. They're still waiting for things to change. And it's a story with a twist. Because as Jesus is further revealed to both the reader and to the characters in the story, they begin to realize, hey, I, I think this could be the Messiah. This, this guy could be the promised king, the one that God said would change everything. But the twist is that no one anticipated the way God actually intended to change things. See, At this point in the story, Israel is being oppressed by the occupying force of Rome, and everyone anticipated that the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming king, 
would lead a revolt against the oppressors and establish a new political kingdom. The religious leaders of Israel believed that if God's people would just keep the Torah, keep the law, the Messiah would arrive and establish that kingdom. So once again, the assumption was politics and right behavior. But God actually planned to address something more profound, which is why the more you read the story, the less likely it seems that Jesus is going to become a political revolutionary of any kind. Because he's teaching his students to love their enemies and to embrace a lifestyle of nonviolence, which is a way of life no political system in history has ever upheld. He's teaching them to serve and care for others at one's own expense, especially the poor and the outsider. And he's teaching them to forgive one another as God would forgive their moral failure. Now, all of these things fly in the face of the powers that be. So the story reaches, reaches a fever pitch when Jesus is arrested as an enemy of the state and he is publicly executed. It's a story with a sad, humiliating ending, if that were the end of the story. Okay, all that setup finally places us at Luke chapter 24. Let's read the Easter story together. Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to Jesus' tomb. Jesus is dead. They found the stone that covered the tomb rolled away. When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they, the apostles, did not believe the women because their words seemed like them, to them like nonsense. We saw him die. He can't possibly be alive. Verse 12, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were walking with each other and talking, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept somehow from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified. But we had hoped, we had hoped, that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of our companions went to the tomb. They found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. At this point, they still don't believe that could be possible. Verse 25, 
Jesus said to them, How foolish you are! How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, no, stay with us. It's it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you, which is kind of like saying hi. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Verse 50, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This story is what made the same fearful Peter who sank in the sea and who denied even knowing Jesus at all, the same Peter who was willing to hang upside down on a cross. This is the story that explains why Paul, who persecuted the way, was then beheaded for its sake. Why the same James, who once asked to call down fire to consume his enemies, died by the sword rather than taking one up against them. Why in the world would these people give up what they once believed, who they once were, with nothing to profit, nothing to gain, but unpopularity, persecution, imprisonment, and poverty, and death, because they saw Jesus die, and then they saw that he rose again, and everything changed. When Jesus, their teacher and friend, was buried in a tomb, all their hope went into the grave with him. But when Jesus rose, hope rose with him. 
and their hope, like Jesus himself, had been glorified and made new. No longer would they wait on a political revolution or on a set of rules to change everything, but now they knew that the cycle of chaos itself had been disrupted, that Jesus had stormed the gates of death and hell, and he had returned with the keys. Jesus, like God promised at the very beginning of the story, had finally crushed the serpent's head. And more than that, in his death and resurrection, Jesus has dealt with the seemingly insurmountable obstacle of sin by taking that which we could not resolve onto himself, which is why later in the New Testament we read, he, Jesus, committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls if jesus actually defeated death if he actually took humanity's cycle of failure onto himself then Someone has done something about our predicament, about the human condition. It means that what Jesus says is actually true and that just as he himself passed through death and was raised, he will do the same for us. He'll take our, our failure and he will, as promised, make everything new. He's begun to do that now, small bursts of redemption shining through cracks in the old way of things. But on a coming day, he will resolve all all failure and suffering so that the brokenness of the present must be juxtaposed against the hope of the future. Everything has changed. Now, do me a favor. Before we're done, turn once more to the right in your Bibles, all the way to the end of the book, to something we call Revelation. Now, every Easter we read the story, same story, we remember and in, in, we internalize and celebrate this new reality. And every Easter we are in the midst of a world that is hurting. Nothing changes there. But this Easter, we're all hurting the same way. We're scared. We don't know what's coming. We're lonely, discouraged, confused, a bit worn down, I think. And this, I think, is the ideal time to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the Bible's triumphant conclusion, a book called The Revelation of Jesus, is written in a strange literary genre we don't have anymore called apocalyptic. And it is specifically intended to juxtapose the pain and uncertainty of the present against the unseen hope of the future. John wrote the book while in exile to a church that was facing at the time, terrifying and violent persecution. And in the book, John experiences this incredible, vivid, wild, symbolic vision of mo mostly of the present, but also the future. And it's replete with metaphors and numbers and wild imagery. Now, most of Revelation was directed to the audience at the time it was authored, but the book does have profound things to say to future generations of Jesus' apprentices. And one of them struck me this week it's something that John hears from Jesus himself in the midst of this incredible vision of his. In chapter one of Revelation, John comes face to face with the risen Jesus. The sight of him is like powerful and overwhelming. So in Revelation one, verse 17, John writes this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, and listen to this, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, 
And now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Long after a sad day in Israel when a peasant rabbi was executed and laid in the grave, after he appeared to his friends and changed everything, after the church grew and spread throughout the ancient Mediterranean, when the old cycles of chaos and evil continued to engulf the world as we know it, Jesus appeared with the same reassurance to end all reassurances. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Earlier, I mentioned the the bombings last year that targeted Christians on Easter. When the smoke cleared from St. Sebastian's Church in Sri Lanka and the bodies of people and families were buried, an old statue of the resurrected Jesus stood in the chapel, spattered from head to toe in the blood of those who died there. And the church cleaned out the ash and the debris and the shrapnel, and they took that statue and they put it on the altar in their sanctuary, and the people came right back inside to worship. Though he was spattered in the blood of suffering, he was still risen. Nothing can stop Easter. The bombings had failed because he was dead, and now he is alive, and because he holds the keys to death itself. And now the greatest horrors of the world wither and fall before the incredible majesty that changes everything. The tomb was found empty and everything has changed. And in our season of loneliness and fear, when the world faces sickness and suffering and those we, we love seem far away and the future itself seems imposing and unknown, the risen Jesus who was dead and is now alive, steps through the pain and the chaos to put his hand on us and say, as he said to Peter, as he said to John, do not be afraid, I am alive. Jesus is not an idea. He is not a distant notion. He is the one who changes everything and he is with us always to the very end because he is alive forever and ever. So we take the blood-spattered wreckage of our lives, not just pandemic isolation and anxiety, but all the pain of our lives, and we set it on the altar of the church in mockery and defiance of death. Even though we will go into the grave of suffering and death, we will not stay there. He was dead, and now he is alive forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us or find more teachings and available resources from Van City at www.vancity.church. You can also support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.